Right, we're going to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We've been working through a series in Daniel, and we've taken a pause from that for a few weeks to do something different. Daniel's fairly intense, as you've all experienced, and so it's nice to do something a little bit different from time to time. Jeremy spoke to you last week on the theme of mission, and um, you can't help but be stirred when you hear that man's heart, can you? And he's so uh, full of passion for people to know more about Jesus. And so I wanted to um, sort of speak into something related to that, which has to do with the whole thing of uh, what happens as your church grows, as it becomes fruitful, and really speak to you in a sort of pastoral way in that sense, to take a kind of a pause this morning and think, okay, what, what's, where are we at and what's going to happen in, in the next year, two years? And a lot of what Ben says really feeds in so well with the kind of themes that I'm trying to pick up on. So we're going to read the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, before we get into that, it's from v- verse 11. I just want to read the first two verses of the chapter. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. This is Jesus. So in other words, the rejects of society are coming to hear Jesus. He had this amazing power to preach an uncompromising message, but in such a way that people who thought that they were beyond grace were drawn to him and found acceptance and love. He's amazing. And we've all experienced that. But then it says that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So they're not happy with the kind of company Jesus keeps. He tells three stories to try and show them where he's coming from, his heart for lost people. And then he goes from verse 11, this long story. So then he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring Quickly, the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has Come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him, and he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What a story. Well, there are obviously three main characters in this story that Jesus tells. And in a way, we we kind of relate to each of them in a different way. There's There's the youngest brother, the prodigal son, who the story is really famous for because we often see him as a center of the plot. This kid who... Um, overwhelmed by temptation, desire, um, just the appeal of the bright lights of the city and all that he can do there. Just He has no concept of desire gratification. He can't wait for when his dad dies. He wants his share of the property. He wants to go and spend all his money to go and have fun. His older brother says, you know, go and spend it on prostitutes and do whatever he wants to do with his life. And you just, it's just like the typical dumb kid, isn't it, who, um, who's just wayward. And he ends up in a really, just because of his impulsive nature, ends up in a really deep hole where he has nothing left and his whole life is beginning to fall apart. And he comes to his senses, he feels guilt, he feels sorrow, he feels shame and he comes back humbled to the ground hoping that his father will receive him back. So you have this this one character and I just wonder if in any way that speaks to you. If any of you maybe could track your story along any point along that road of what the prodigal son was up to. So maybe at the very start, at the moment you're feeling the raging desire to go and do something really stupid. Or maybe you're already in the midst of all that. That that whilst maybe at one point you, you thought you had a relationship with God or maybe you didn't. But either way, you think at the moment your life is just all about pleasure. Or maybe you're, you're that bit further on, the inevitable part further on in the story where all of that just dries up at some point, whether because you run out of resources, you get old and ugly, or they, things just get less interesting, whatever it is, stuff dries up and it no longer repays you in the way that it once did. Or maybe you're at the next phase where you're just suddenly feeling the guilt and the shame for things you've done, and you're wanting to come home. Or maybe you have come home. Wherever you are on that journey, I think all of us, to some degree, can relate with something of what the prodigal son went through. I think that Jesus wants you to understand that he wants you to come home and he wants you when you're home to feel at home. And that there's nothing more important for, the, for, for a church than to be a place where those who have been walking away from God can find their, their rest, can find their home with Jesus in restoration, in grace, in the Father's embrace. There's that guy. Then there's a the father who just in, in his totally non-controlling way allows this son to go off, experiences the bitter disappointment of a, a son who has effectively said to him, I wish you were dead. I don't, I don't want to live here with you. I don't want to be under your care anymore. And so he's had this disappointment. But the minute he sees his son, compassion overwhelms any sense of anger, any sense that his son 
has betrayed him and he runs to him in this most undignified way, hitching up his robes, pelting it across the field to go and grab his son. He doesn't even let his son finish the speech which he'd prepared before he cuts in halfway through and says, rubbish, I'm going to get you a robe, I'm going to get you a ring, I'm going to get you shoes, I'm going to kill a cow, we're going to have a feast tonight at your home. The father is in a sense the picture of course of what God is like towards anyone who, who repents. He's also a picture of what the church is meant to be like towards anybody who even shows the merest hint that they're open to the grace of God. And then there's this third character, the brother. The older brother. Anyone who's got an older sibling knows exactly what this guy's like. (laughs) I love my brother, I'm only kidding. But there's, um, (laughs) in many ways, this older brother is the whole point of the story. You remember how I read to you the first two verses in the chapter that Jesus got all these random sinners gathering around him because they find acceptance with him. Then the Pharisees and the scribes, in other words, the religious elite, are really annoyed at that situation. So Jesus tells them this story. So clearly he wants them to understand that he's talking about them. Let me just give you seven features of this older brother, what he's like. Because if you notice in verse 28 how he's angry and refuses to go in. It's the definition of cutting off your nose to spite your face. In other words, they're all having a party in his anger and aggression or passive aggression. He doesn't even want to join in the party because he's so livid and annoyed at what's, what's taking place. Seven things about him that come out from his own speech, out of his own mouth. First is that he's a self-righteous guy. It says, look, these many years I have served you. You can almost sense his swelling chest as he holds his head high and sort of considers himself to be really just better than his younger brother. And maybe he has a point. He's a self-righteous guy. He's saying, I'm good, I'm better, I'm pure, I've not messed up my life. He's also judgmental. He says, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. You can sort of feel the insinuation, what he's implying there, look at that guy. He's, he's disobeyed you. I haven't. He's looking down on his younger brother with this kind of superiority, isn't he? Feeling that he's something better, something good, and that look at him, what a, he's rubbish. Then he feels entitled. He says, yet you never gave me a young goat. Now this is sort of the definition of entitlement because even when the father kills the cow for the younger son. It wasn't because the son had earned it or deserved it. It's just because he's feeling a moment of generosity. But the older brother is sort of saying, surely, after all these years, I deserve this kind of a party thrown for me and my friends. That sense of entitlement because he's earned it, because he's, because he's, he's, he's poured his life out, he's worked and sweated on the farm, and surely he's earned his keep to the point where he can have a party like this. He feels this sense of entitlement. He's deeply unloving is a fourth thing about him. You see how he says, he wants the young goat that I might celebrate, listen, with my friends. And then he says, but when this son of yours came. Can you see how he's, he's sort of saying, I want to hang out with my buddies and that guy over there, he's not even, I won't even call him my brother. He's your son. Just totally unloving. He can't even say hello to his younger brother. He can't feel any sense of, 
thankfulness or joy or gratitude that he's come back, that he's safe and sound. He, he won't even associate with him by calling him his brother. He says, my friends, your son. And he's envious because he says, he talks about his younger brother as having devoured your property with prostitutes. And you can't help but feel a little bit of a sense of, man, I could have done that and then come back and had a cough and, and had a party and nothing, everything would have been the same. It's almost like he's feeling a little bit of like resentment that he didn't get a chance to go and live a wayward life and then come back and be accepted. He's envious of him. And he's deeply resentful. He says, you killed the fattened calf for him. In other words, he didn't deserve it or earn it. Why did you do that for him? And so if I could sum it up with one word which captures everything I'm trying to say about him. I think that this older brother is just deeply self-obsessed. In what ought to be an incredibly happy moment in his family, all he can think about is how it affects him, how he's missed out, how he deserves more, he deserves better, and how nothing is being given to him that he ought to have. And so I wanted to just jump off from that picture of the older brother to begin talking about some of the things that can happen as as, as, uh, as churches grow and as we, as we as a church grow. So as I said, I want to speak to you kind of in a pastoral way, in a, re- a way that's seeking to prepare us. I'm not, I'm not so much wanting to put my finger on things that I see going on now in our church, but really wanting to prepare us. You know, if, if as Ben said, you know, we're just like the first two layers of what God is doing here and suddenly it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow and God's going to bring sort of randomness to this church, but it's going to grow vertically then friends, there's nothing more important than that we be prepared for what God's going to do through us as a church because the need out there is enormous and we're barely even scratching the surface. So I want us to dwell on that for a few minutes. And First, we need to kind of plot ourselves in the story of what I'm trying to talk about. First, by God's grace, we've gotten to this point, we've grown and we'll continue to grow. I'm sure of it, and bear fruit. You know, when, when we started as a church, we began as an idea. Um, and when, you know, I don't know how many ideas you have, whether you're kind of the entrepreneurial type, but ideas typically, most of them, 99 out of 100, don't come to anything, right? And so even from the very start, this church may never have existed if it had remained as an idea. But it kind of began to gather steam as an idea and became something. And then we started to gather a few people, nine of us. And we started meeting together once a week in our home, in our home and just praying, trusting God, thinking what could happen if we were to start a church. It was fun times. And uh, we started. And when we started, you know, in the pub, when we began, um, we, honestly, we weren't sure if anyone would, would show up, if, if we would. You know, we invited some friends and so on. Most of those friends never came again. And, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. But by God's grace, we've begun to get some momentum with this thing. And I want to honestly say to you that we take none of this for granted. Because the truth is, we could have died a long time ago as a church. We could have gone bankrupt. We could have um, just, just wound down in depression and non-existence. And yet, by God's grace, we're here it feels like we're thriving, we're flourishing. And naturally, we're happy about that because we feel like God's hand is with us. I look around at your faces and feel, as Dan does, full of joy. I'm really happy to see you guys. <laughs> I'm sure as Dan is also. Praise God. And um, 
So we got to this point. So by God's grace, we've grown, we'll continue to grow. But here's another thing that I need to say about this. Growth brings change on, on many, many levels. And some of it is desirable change and some of it is undesirable change. But change is inevitable. So just thinking about some of the desirable changes that have happened, even to the point we've got to now, which is relatively young on the grand scheme of things. Friends, there are, there are churches in the world that have existed basically for about 1,500 years or, or longer. So we're really very, very young. <laughs> we're nothing in that sense. We're just a tiny, tiny newborn baby. But, but even to this point, we've experienced changes. Some of them are good, like this. That When we started... Uh, we were so small that some people who came to us didn't want to join because we were too small. And you think, well, that doesn't really help us, but okay. I remember one, one person said to me after they visited, they were like, oh, on the fence, and they said, look, I just really feel there's just not enough young people in your church, and there's not enough old people either. And I was thinking, so there's just basically not enough people. <laughs> so so um, I'm sure some of you thought it before you joined. You were like, oh, there's no chance I'm going to meet my spouse here. There's just not enough fish in this sea. So um, whatever it was that you're thinking, but we, we've gotten to this point and it's, it's a desirable change that we're no longer so small that it's like totally off-putting to people. Another one is that I don't have to lead worship anymore. Praise God. <laughs> there were a few occasions in the early days when I did have to put the guitar down, stand up, preach. This is fantastic. There were times when all we could hear were Dan and Chloe singing and no one else as they bellowed the voice, top of their voices and <laughs> You know, I, I count that actually, I'm sad that that's no longer the case. I love hearing their two voices lead us in that way. But hey, um, things have changed. You could say it's a desirable change that there's more of us. I never knew on any given Sunday whether there would be eight of us or 25 of us. And, um, you know, when there's less of you, it's a bit weird. You know, as I tend to do, I often speak quite directly, speak quite directly about sin issues and ways in which we need to hear the, the Spirit and repent and come back to Jesus. And you know when there's only like eight of you in the room and one of you is the speaker and the, the other seven of you are sat there and you're talking about sin, it's very awkward because you're sat there thinking, he's talking to me. He prepared this for me. And obviously I never do that in that way, but it's like, it's like yeah, he just knows far too much. So the bigger you are, the more you can hide in the crowd, which some of you will feel is a positive thing. It's less awkward at least. You know, a few of us were doing everything. Um, Eugene, where is Eugene. He's outside doing everything, as always. <laughs> Eugene, Eugene would, he, he found the first venue, there he was. He found the first venue, he, he would come early, he would carry a box of Bibles all the way to church, which when you look at how small his arms are, is really surprising. <laughs> and it, he, would, he would set up all the chairs, he would bring, he would get everything ready, and then when you guys had trashed the place, he'd tidy it up, clear it up, and he'd do that every week without complaining. And there were a few of us, like, just doing everything. And you just think, wow, you know, it's so nice that now that's no longer the case. That's a desirable change. You know, we had to print worship sheets every week because it's just weird when one-tenth of your congregation is on tech. So it's much, it just doesn't make any sense at that point. And when we, when, we, when we actually started, there were only two single people in the church. One was a guy, one was a girl, which on any account is a bit weird, isn't it? So we feel like, ooh. So... Um, Nothing happened there in the end. So some of the changes are desirable. Some of them are less desirable. You know, now with every new person who comes to join the church, you know that there's an extra pair of lips that have touched the communion glass before it gets to you. <laughs> with some of you. But I, I agree with Victor on this, that it's impossible to get ill from communion. And um, 
you know, the more we grow, the more busy you get. Some of you are involved in crash, in, um, in the refreshments. You know that Tim and Hannah have been setting up these teams to lead refreshments. You get here at the crack of dawn, you set up early, the guys come and practice. The more that we grow, the more stuff there is to do, and that's only going to increase. There's more busyness that goes on in the church. And one of the big things is just that it feels less intimate. You know, I no longer get to talk to everybody on a Sunday. And so we've already begun to feel some of the changes. Some of them good, some of them feel not so good as a church begins to grow. And so what I want to say to you at this point is that as we continue to grow, there will be more change. And this is where I want us to kind of reflect on the attitude of the older brother and understand how we deal with a church that's beginning to to experience growth. And some of the the changes that will happen will be accidental in other words, they're not things that we go after, but we just ha- they just have to change as a byproduct of growth. Um, some of them are more deliberate, like that we'll have to very much go out there and say, okay, it's no longer appropriate for us to meet here. We need to meet somewhere else with more space, more facilities, all those kinds of things. But I wanted to highlight th- three areas of change for you guys, just to think about and to dwell on as we think about the response of the older brother. One is in the area of community. You know, as a church grows the feeling or how we experience community is going to change. We'll never, by God's grace, lose a sense of being a family and and being a community on mission together, but it does change the way it feels as your your church begins to grow. And we love community, but the trouble is when you get so attached to the idea of church as small. Some of you came to us because we were small, um, and you felt, oh, I could know everybody, and and, and feel like I was part of something, if we get really attached and in love with the idea of a small church, then in a way we're kind of killing our growth, aren't we? Because we, we don't want to grow. We don't want to be friendly with, with any new folk. We don't want to bring anyone along. And you know, this is, becomes a self-defeating thing that we're no longer being fruitful. And you know, in, in a way we can't... Whose alarm is that? That's really... Ringing in my ear. <laughs> um, don't worry about it. Um, so we can't behave like a, a small church forever. And you know, some of the ways in which that will be true for us is that, you know, just in, in silly little things. You know, some of you breathe a sigh of relief at this point, but there'll come a point at which we can't all be in the same WhatsApp group. And you know, you won't, <laughs> you won't any longer have like streams and streams of nonsense on your phone every day because it would be ridiculous. Actually, I think there's a limit. You can only have 100 people in a group. So once we get there, it's no longer going to be true for us. You know, you can't all go for lunch together afterwards because nowhere's going to be able to sit you all. And so these sorts of things change. And, and the question is, how do you cope with the reality that the community looks different as it grows from, step, from, from stage to stage? And do you then sort of get a bit grumpy and go, I'm going to go find another small church to be part of. I'm going to find a, a less fruitful church <laughs> so that it will stay small and I'll have my, my group of friends forever. You know, I, I totally understand and identify with that. I feel the pain of how community changes. Even as our, like, you know, when we began, the whole core team was our life group. And I guess our life group's multiplied a few times now so that who is now in our life group was almost no one who was at the beginning. And so everything changes, and I feel the pain of that to some degree, but I also celebrate because you think it means that more people are experiencing something of the love of God, something of what it means to be a family. So community is one area in which the church changes. Another is in in demographics and the mix of things. It's going to change inevitably. Now, arguably, you can grow faster 
if you say, we're only, only reaching this type of person. And a lot of churches have done that and they said, hey, we're, we're a church for this person. So, you know, we're a church for millennials. So you set up your church to look and feel like a nightclub and you put a rope outside and you make people queue and there's a couple of bouncers and you have pumping music as they walk in. You blow smoke and you have colored lights. And, you know, I, I'm not joking. This is real. And, and you say, we're very much for this type of person. The person who on Friday night, Saturday night, you know, goes out clubbing and then maybe they'll drag themselves out of bed on, on, on Sunday and come along to our church. And that's who we're reaching. And churches that, that do that um, often experience more rapid growth because they, they've got a very clear you know, target audience, if you want to put it like that, if we're going to use such horrible marketing languages. But my, my question is, does Jesus find that pleasing? Does that in any way reflect the way Jesus did ministry? No. You look at, not at all. Like, you look at his, his disciples and you've got, you've, got, um, you know, you've, got, you've got an old guy who's a kind of a scholar and you've got young guys who are fishermen and you've got guys who are anti-Rome and you've got guys who worked for Rome and you've got everything in the, in the middle and they're just a random hodgepodge because Jesus is saying my kingdom is for all kinds of people from all walks of life. Is it good? Is it, does it please Jesus to, to do that as a church? I don't think so. Is it even good for you if you go to church and everyone is exactly like you? Of course it isn't. Because they only reinforce all of your own prejudices and the ways in which you have such a limited, myopic view of the world. I say you in a general way. I mean me, of course, as well. So as we grow, as we change, we're going to have to look at everything and say, look, we don't just want to be a church for one type of person. We want to be a church can in some way reflect the beauty of the diversity of the city we live in and so also of the kingdom of God. And as change happens, it's going to feel different. You know, people will be different from you. And again, at that point, how do you cope? Are you going to be like the older brother who sort of says, I want, I want to have some meat with my friends? Or are you going to be you know, someone who recognizes that even the very different types of people that God brings into his church are your siblings in Christ and that we're called to be a family. Here's another way. is in the area of, of the culture of the church. The culture of the church changes. So, you know, we've been quite casual up to now and maybe it's okay, you know, occasionally to see Dan Tan in his basketball shirt at church just flashing his armpits as he praises God. And, but, and you could say... As we're growing, though, you, I think you know, Paul, what Paul has to say on this, we were challenged, the leadership team met with a guy called Donnie Griggs, who's um, a pastor in North Carolina. And Donnie's just got um, a phenomenal focus on the call to be a missionary to his town. And his church has just grown as he's seen many people come to faith. And he was challenging us from this verse in 2 Corinthians 6, where it says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. And what he was saying was that the gospel is hard enough. When you stand up and tell people, listen, you're, without Christ you're under judgment. And that you need to know the, the, the Lord who, who lived and died for your sins. And that you can only come to the Father and you can only know eternal life through Jesus. When you stand up and tell that to people and say that there is an absolute divide in this world, between those who do know him and those who do not know him, and the divide is the cross, the divide is putting your faith in Jesus who died for you. When you stand up and say these things, there's enough in that to offend people and put them off ever coming to church again. 
I know it because I've done it many times. <laughs> There's enough in there that, that people can stumble on. And in fact, the Bible says that Jesus is the stumbling stone because it was always the case that people either are humbled by him into surrender or they stumble over him and, and never come back. Jesus is a stumbling stone. So if, he, if there's enough in there to offend people, why do we want to add other things to make it more difficult for people to receive, receive Christ and come and feel like they can be part of the church? And so what I mean in a very practical, down-to-earth way is that sometimes as a church, you have to look at every aspect of what you're doing and say, are we unnecessarily putting people off coming to see and experience and know Jesus? Is our music just so, so tailored to only one kind of person? Is the way we dress or the way we hold ourselves only going to appeal to one kind of person? You know, is the venue only going to welcome one kind of person? Is it, are people going to struggle to come to know Jesus because of the way we, we, we organize our church life together? And, or we're too busy or we've not got enough going on? Everything has to be subjected to those questions so that we can remove all the obstacles out of the way so that when people are coming, all they get confronted by is Jesus. And that's our desire and our hope, and that's what the leadership team is wanting to talk and pray through and think through as we move forward. Because we want those of you who are students to feel like you can bring your student friends, those of you who are in the city to feel like you can bring your city friends, and all of us to recognize that as long as they get to see Jesus, we're happy, and nothing else should distract them from that sight. How do you cope when the stuff, though, that you like about this church is the stuff that has to go? Are you like the, the older brother who looks at it and says, you know, feels a bit grumpy because things aren't the way you want them to be? And so there's some ironies that wrap up with this whole thing of, of, of what it's like as a church grows. You know, it's ironic that the very things that drew you in the first place may be the things that stop others from coming to join the church or coming to know Jesus. They can become the very obstacles that stop people. It's ironic that the very things that cause us to grow may become victims of their own success. So, you know, the fact that, for example, that we're, we're small now may be an appeal to some kind of people because they want to become, feel part of a family. But if that appeals to too many people, it's no longer true of you. You're no longer small. Do you see what I'm saying? It reminds me of how, you know, when Facebook started in the early days, you remember how it was limited only to students from one university and then it was only students at university. And the whole point was to create this buzz. It's not something that your nana's going to be on. And it's, it's going to be like an exclusive community. And so there's something cool about that. And of course, eventually, it was all a tactic to get the whole world on the thing. And pretty much that's happened. And so now the young generation don't want to be on it because they want to see, they don't want their mum to see what they're doing at the weekend and all this kind of stuff. So, you know... You can become a victim of your own success in that sense. Or in the same way, you know, when a new band hits the scene and it's got a kind of an indie feel and it's got a small gathering, you go from them from pub to pub and listen to them. They're diehard fans. As soon as they hit it big time, if they hit it big time, all the fans who loved them in the early days now hate them because they've sold out to the machine and the industry and the man and all that kind of stuff. And I think the similar things goes on with the church. That as you grow and it's no longer revolving around you and your preferences in your world, you can feel resentful. And I, I'm just wanting us to be prepared in that sense. And I want to close off with three, three, three truths that come to me from this story and that ought to be the, control the way we think about what God's going to do among us as a church. And the question is, how can we respond without getting grumpy 
or leaving or whatever it is. And one negative and two positives. The, the, the negative is this. It's to see that church is not about me. It's not about you. This older brother, his whole problem was that he was so utterly self-obsessed that he couldn't, in his heart and mind, cross the divisions that existed between him and his younger brother and and be happy on account of his brother's repentance and transformation. And, And we can have the exact same attitude when we think about churches just pandering to our preferences, our desires, our the things that we need. And so we can begin to feel an entitlement that it should be this way or that way or that we should be in leadership and, and these kinds of things. We can begin to feel judgmental towards people who are different from us joining the church. Or we can feel not see, see new folk who are different from us in age or in, in ethnicity or in background or in you know, social status or whatever. Not see them as our siblings. You just want to have the fattened calf and kill it and eat it with your friends and, and not talk about that other person as being your brother or your sister in Christ. We can resent the direction of the church because it's not according to my preferences, how I would do things. And, and we can resent the fact that it's no longer meeting the needs that I had when I came. So I, I wanted a church that was like this, this, and this, and it ticked all my boxes. And suddenly it's different, and I, I need to go. And so, my friends, I, I would just encourage you to understand church is not about me in that sense. The church is a family, and it's a family on a mission seeking to do something in the world. I could imagine that the coziest time in the history of the church was when the 120 were gathering in an upper room to pray. Can you imagine how tight that community was? Outside of the walls of the room they were in was the enemy. Everyone hated them because they hated Jesus. And they were afraid of going out the room. But inside the room they experienced comfort, warmth. It was like they were all hugging hot water bottles and enjoying each other's company. And, you know, you could imagine that had it stayed like that, they would have been a happy little segregated community. But that was never God's intention. God poured out his Holy Spirit on them and shattered that from pretty much the earliest moments of the church because they grew by 3,000 in a single day when the Holy Spirit came. God never wanted the church to settle into a kind of, into a very narrow-minded community for one type of person and, and, and feel like that. Church is not about us in that sense. Church is about Christ's ambition to reach the entire world. His prediction that it indeed will, that the smallest mustard seed is going to become the biggest tree upon, in which all the birds of the air can come and find nests in its branches. That's Christ's ambition for his church. So pretty soon, the, the picture of the 120 in a room, in an upper room, becomes outdated. And even if it's just the 60, 65 of us in a little theater, it's not, it's not what Christ wants. He wants something more, doesn't he? His ambition far outstrips ours. Church is not about me. A couple of positive things, though. Church is about receiving sinners. Because we're all in that category. Now, in the story, we're not the father... There's only one Father, Heavenly Father. But we, as his church in the earth, represent his embrace to the world. That just as the Father ran to embrace his Son, 
And as Christ ran to embrace the tax collectors and the sinners and all the people who, who, who were gathered to him, so also he wanted to impress and impart that desire and attitude upon his church always. That the church exists for people whose lives are broken, people who feel that they are disqualified, people who feel that they are way beyond the forgiveness and grace. Church exists for those people, not for the people who are exactly like you or who are well-heeled or who have experienced you know, a great, decent upbringing and a decent education and you have decent manners. And so we're called to be a church that, that wants to run to all kinds of people, be they prodigals who've, who've walked away from the faith and God is inviting them back, or be they atheists who've been swearing against God's existence since they were since they were at their mother's breast and have always hated the idea of God and somehow God's turned their heart. Whatever it is and everyone in between, we exist for that. And here's my last point. Church is meant to be a celebration. The depressing moment, the moment which really ought to have stung his hearers, when Jesus told the story, was that he, when he describes the older brother as being angry and refusing to go in. Because immediately, the people who were angrily listening to Jesus recognized that he was talking about them. And so, what Jesus underlines for them, these Pharisees and tax collectors, is that their, their, their biggest sin here is a failure to experience Joy at God changing lives. Did you, hear, did you hear how the father addressed the, the older son? He said, he said, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. This your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. And I think part of what this means for us is that there's a right and a wrong emotional response when God starts doing things in his church. And sadly, all too often, Christians react angrily or with dismay or with selfish interest when God is clearly doing good things. And what he's saying to us here is, God wants you to rejoice when he is doing something precious. So my question as we close is, will you rejoice at all God does with all the change that we're going to see in this church? Will you rejoice when maybe you feel overlooked in the way the older brother did? You didn't kill the fattened calf for me. You know, when, when it, it, church no longer feels like you're the center of what's going on, will you rejoice because God is doing something bigger that's bigger than us? And I just say as my closing thought before we take communion that the only way that we can be freed from the kind of misguided notion that church is about us is when we keep coming back to the cross. When we keep lifting up Jesus and understand that he alone has to take center place in his church. It exists because of him and it exists for him. The church exists for his glory in the world. This church exists for that reason and that purpose. And so as long as Christ is doing stuff in Grace London we want to rejoice and be happy and be full of thanksgiving. Let him take the focus and let us be freed from any me focus as we celebrate with him.